0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we sing together and pray together and sit under your word together and come to your table together i pray that you would knit us together that you would help us to run together and to finish this race that we call faith we pray these things in jesus name amen you may be seated Now I don't know about you but when I whenever I read Hebrews 11 and 12 I can't help but think of some of my own heroes of the faith. <clears throat> so I want to begin this morning with some words from Pastor Eugene Peterson, one of my spiritual heroes. In his book A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he offers an assessment of our time that I think can help us to see why we need a letter like Hebrews today. I'm paraphrasing a bit from what he says in this book. He says, in our culture, it's not difficult to get people interested in Jesus, but it's terribly difficult to sustain that interest. Many claim to be born again, but evidence for mature discipleship is slim. In our culture, anything, even the gospel, can be sold if it's packaged in the right way. But when it loses its novelty, we toss it like we toss everything else. There's a huge market for religious experience today, but there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little interest in the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. And I think with this, St. Eugene exposes some of our cultural pathologies, our obsession with what is quick and with what's easy and what's popular. infatuation with efficiency and novelty and the reality is we're not actually that different from the original audience uh, to this letter. We may have a longer life expectancy and more religious freedom but the temptations that we face are the same. When the novelty of Jesus wears off or the cost of following Jesus in the same world that crucified Jesus runs too high, we're tempted to quit were tempted to quit following Jesus. The book of Hebrews is written to just such people, people who struggle, people like us, people who struggle with how long and slow and difficult is the apprenticeship to Jesus. Our passage this morning offers us three things to help us keep following Jesus over the long haul. So first it reminds us of the importance of community second it tells us of the rhythm of faith and third it reframes how we should experience life's trials and so we're going to look at these three things together this morning now in the first section of the letter in verses 32 to 40 chapter 11 we're reminded of the importance of community for the life of faith our lesson picks up at the end of chapter 11 it's an amazing chapter and in this chapter, the author doesn't just define faith, although he does do that at the beginning. He doesn't just define it, he shows us what faith looks like by spotlighting men and women who believed fidelity to Jesus was more precious than life itself. And one of the most interesting things to me about this passage is not that this great cloud of witnesses, this community of saints um, is, its sorry, One of the most interesting things to me about this passage is not that uh, this group of people that uh, he relays to us is is meant for imitation or inspiration. It's that their existence in some way uh, is what makes our faith possible, the very possibility of faith. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says that we can keep following Jesus since or because we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Their existence somehow grounds the very possibility of our faith over the long haul. And I think we need to hear this. Each one of us, to varying degrees, are all products of a culture that glorifies the independent individual. And this passage teaches us that independence is not a Christian virtue. This passage teaches us that the Christian life is always life together. And I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes why we need one another. In his book, Life Together, he says that we need one another because the Christ in our brother's mouth is stronger than the Christ in our own hearts. The Christ in our sister's mouth is stronger than the Christ in our own hearts. So what does he mean by this? Well, I think he means when I doubt, darkness veils my sight, you all speak the light of truth to me. I think it means that when you have a hard time believing that God could still love you after what you did last week, I tell you that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, indeed nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the communion of saints is not just a neat but optional thing for us. The communion of saints is actually essential And that's why we see it in the creed. When we confess that we believe in the communion of saints, we're not just saying we believe that God's people have existed across time and space, although that is true. When we confess that we believe in the communion of saints, we're saying that the communion with God's people past and present, walking in community is no less vital, no less essential to our faith than the death and resurrection of Jesus. This tells us that if we don't walk together, we won't be walking for very long. And so that's the first thing that our passage teaches us. It reminds us of just how vital community is. And the second thing that we see in our passage is what I'm calling the rhythm of faith. As we try to understand this next section, verses 1 through 13 in chapter 12, I want us to pay attention to the athletic metaphors that are used to describe the Christian faith. Athletic images like these were often used in moral writings in the ancient world. And it's not hard to understand why. Growth in athletic competition is a lot like growth in the moral or spiritual life. They all require discipline and training and hard work. And again, we're not that different from the ancients, right? This is why, one of the reasons why we put our kids in Little League because this is where they learn some of life's most important lessons on the field of competition. They learn teamwork and how to deal with loss and how to deal with winning. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, the author describes faith as running a race. and This running is described with three movements. This is what I'm calling the rhythm of faith. We are to get rid of anything that slows us down, we are to focus our eyes on the finish line, on Jesus, and we are to run. And so I'm gonna quickly go through each one of these three movements together. Now the first movement of faith is to lay aside every weight and sin. This is an image of a runner throwing off heavy clothes like their warm ups, getting rid of anything heavy in their hands so that they can run free. And the two things that we are to lay aside here are first, every weight, and second, sin. The first thing, every way, this is morally neutral or even good things that can distract us from following Jesus. And sin, this is talking about disobedience, things that prevent us from following Jesus. And so the call before us is to get rid of distraction and disobedience. And so we should ask ourselves this morning, what is slowing us down? What's getting in between us and Jesus? Maybe it's misaligned priorities in your life. Maybe it's working so much that you don't have the margin to invest in spiritual friendships. Maybe it's wasting so much time on your screen binging Netflix. Maybe it's pornography. Well, whatever's slowing you down, getting in between you and Jesus, the call is to lay it aside, throw it off so that you can run free. And the second movement of faith we see is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Turn from what slows us down and turn to him, to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And this is one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in all of the Bible. It means Jesus has gone before us and that he's finished the race. On the cross, he conquered sin and death. And when he ascended to the throne of God, he opened the door to eternal life that we could walk through it. And because Jesus ran the race set before him, he's able to help us finish the race that's set before us. When we fix our eyes on him, when we focus on the finish line. And the third movement of faith is running, running with perseverance. And here we get a sense of the pace of faith. We are to run, but we're to run with endurance. It's not a sprint where we quickly burn out. It's not a sprint, but it is very active, right? Nothing or very few things get the heart rate up like running does. So faith isn't about letting go and letting God, about Jesus taking the wheel or something like that. It's about running a race. Faith is active. Faith is sweaty. So these are the three movements of faith that our text describes for us. can be helpful to think of these as sort of the theory of faith. And then in the next section in verses 3 through 14, we learn how this theory is applied in our lives. So to keep the running metaphor going, this final section helps us to navigate the root of faith. Uh, that's the, to navigate the root of the race that is set before us. Okay now, so part of me, if I'm really honest, wishes what comes next in this passage was different. I wish it said something like this, Kevin, if you lay aside the things that are slowing you down and if you fix your eyes on Jesus and run towards him, if you do this, then the route before you will be straight and flat, maybe even slightly downhill. I wish it said, if you follow Jesus, life will be good for you. You'll be safe and you'll be secure, you'll be happy and you'll be healthy. But this isn't where our passage leads us, because this isn't where faith in Jesus Christ leads us. Instead, what we see is a trail map of life that is marked difficult. In verse four, the race set before us is described as a struggle. It's a long struggle against sin. The route of faith is marked by twists and turns, by hills and holes, as we fight against the evil desires in our own hearts as we contend with the death and disease and despair that marks our world and as we try to withstand the assaults of our enemy, the devil. Now when I first signed up for this race, when I became a Christian as a teenager in high school, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. I thought following Jesus, when I did that, it was going to make, he was going to make my life a lot easier. I would experience less pain and less loss. Unless disappointment. I thought life was going to be more like a walk in the park following Jesus, but the reality is it often feels more like I'm running through a minefield, right? I actually have to care about sin now. I have to avoid it. I have to resist it. I have to fight against it. Now, don't get me wrong. When I'm in my right mind, I wouldn't change the life of faith for the world. It's marked by love and joy, and it really is so good to follow Jesus, but if you stick with it long enough, if you follow Jesus long enough, it's also very hard, sometimes unbearably hard. And so for some of us, I think maybe for each of us at one time or another, the difficulty of following Jesus has been enough to make us rethink the whole faith thing. If you run through a minefield long enough, you're going to get hit by shrapnel. And when this happens, makes us wonder, right? We ask some questions. Why in the world is this happening? Does God know it's happening? Is he good? Does God love me? Is God still worth following? These are good questions to ask, I think. Verses 3 through 13 speak to these kinds of questions. They provide an answer for us. These verses help us to process the hard reality of the life of faith. And I think if we get what this passage is saying it can reframe how we experience the grind of daily life in a world that's riddled by sin. It can help us understand why this race following Jesus is so hard and I think the key to understanding this passage this section once again is to notice the athletic imagery that's in it. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 the metaphor is a foot race and in verses 3 through 13, the metaphor is uh, a training program for athletic competition, something like spring training or boot camp. And We see this in the word discipline that's repeated nine times in this short section. The Greek word here is paideia, where we get our English word pedagogy. It has everything to do with a holistic kind of education, so think physical, moral, and spiritual instruction and formation. And in our lesson, paideia is translated as discipline. Now, this isn't a wrong translation by any means, but I think it can be a little bit confusing because we associate discipline with punishment. So if you read this passage, you can think God is heavy handed and he's just obsessed with punishing us. But this isn't what paideia means. It means much more than this. In the ancient world, it was a word used to describe the education and the formation of the ideal Greek citizen. So it's not really about punishment at all. It's about a program of training or instruction to form us, to help us to become a certain kind of people. And I think it's easier to see this if throughout this passage, we replace the word discipline with instruction. So for example, in verse seven, endure trials for the sake of instruction. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not instruct. To help us grasp what this passage is saying, I want to read a similar kind of passage from a guy named Epictetus. He was a Stoic philosopher who was alive at the same time the book of Hebrews was written. When Epictetus' disciples asked him why their life was filled with trials, this is how he answered them. He said, our true identity is revealed in our trials. So when trouble comes, think of yourself as a wrestler whom God, like a trainer, has paired with a tough training partner. You might ask, why would God do this? Well, God would do this to turn you into Olympic class material. But this process becoming like this is going to take some sweat, he says. And I think our passage in Hebrews is saying something very similar to this passage from Epictetus. Only God isn't trying to turn us into good Stoics. He's trying to turn us into his sons and his daughters. When we see that trials are for instruction, when they're for our good and for our growth, I think this can transform how we experience the hard stuff that we face following Jesus. When we begin to wrap our minds around this, the hard stuff gets reframed. We begin to see trials not as obstacles to following Jesus, But as our opportunities. They're part of the curriculum of our faith. This is where and how we grow up. And of course knowing this doesn't make the struggle easier. It doesn't make the struggle with sin lighter necessarily, but knowing this can help us keep running. Knowing that there's a point to it all can help us endure. When the challenges of life are understood this way, I think the picture that emerges from this passage is not God as a retributive father who lives to punish us for all of our naughtiness. The picture that jumps off the page is God as a loving father who's also our coach. Our trials are our training ground and our loving father is coaching us through them. He's raising us up as his sons and daughters. Because this is what good parents do, right? We don't shelter our children from bumps and bruises instead we coach them through it through it we teach them and we instruct them how to run through the minefield this is how God's children become mature men and women who believe that fidelity to Jesus is more precious than life itself it's not by avoiding the hard stuff it's by following Jesus through it so what does this look like worked out in our own lives well, application this week won't require much creativity. Our life is filled with challenges. The struggle with sin is ever before us. And so what I want you to do is just think about your life. Think about the things that you're going to be facing this afternoon, the things that you'll be facing this week. Think about the moments of temptation, the challenging people and the hard relationships, the problems that you're facing at work. In each one of these hard places, what does it look like to work out the rhythm of faith right there? So maybe you have a medical procedure this week. Maybe you're going to receive some cancer treatments. In the midst of that struggle against sin and its effects, what do you need to lay aside? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's your anger against God. Well, whatever it is, lay it aside and fix your eyes on Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and run your race. Maybe in the midst of your unwanted singleness, what do you need to lay aside? Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's the belief that you need romantic love to be whole, to be complete. Well, fix your eyes on Jesus who was never married and is the most fully human being who has ever lived and run your race. In the midst of being mocked or ignored or ridiculed for your faith, what do you need to lay aside? Maybe it's your obsession with being liked or even understood. Well, fix your eyes on Jesus who was neither and run your race. And as a community, we need to be asking ourselves, how can we run with those who are going through it? How can we come alongside those who are sick, those who are lonely, those who are anxious and afraid? We can't run this race alone, we need one another. And so brothers and sisters, the opportunity before us today is what Karl Barth called the impossible possibility, the life of faith. May God help us together throw off the things that are slowing us down to fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that's set before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us your children And we know that because you instruct us, you instruct the children that you love. And I thank you that you've called us to follow you, not alone, but together as a church family. And I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us um, have the courage to follow you and to encourage one another to follow you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to lift our drooping hands and to strengthen our weak knees as we follow after you. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.